0: right. Okay. Welcome to the thereafter podcast, a place where we explore life on the other side of faith change.
1: We're here to break down the binaries, deconstruct the dualities and wander through what it looks like to live in the gray.
0: In church, we were told that life after leaving would be a bitter wasteland of unfulfilling hedonism, but we've discovered quite the opposite.
1: There's actually a vibrant community of people on the other side of faith who are finding and co creating space for hope and healing.
0: Come along as we explore the all too often uncharted expanse of evangelicalism, evolving faith, and the life thereafter.
1: Podcast Megan, what's going on?
0: Hey, I it's I, can we just start that was over? Beautiful,
1: well done. <laughs> I, good intro. No, nope, that's it. You get one shot. That's how you decided to start the podcast. And that's how we're going into it.
0: All right, I, I'm just I'm gonna for it. push Let's
1: back just, against your Enneagram one that wants to do it right. I like that. I think it's endearing. You're like, hey, uh, hi, um, yes, we have a guest with us doing the intro. Matt, yes. the Starkey Gent from Twitter. Hello, everyone. <laughs> if so you want to start over, we can start over. But no, I kind of love this <laughs> intro. I
0: think it's great. I will stay with it. I just think it speaks to me and my partner trying to hang a picture in our bedroom for, like, two hours today. And it just wasn't perfect. Yep. And I was kind of an asshole about it. And so I just, like, I need to deal with, you know, imperfection. Yeah, this is
1: exposure perfect. therapy. This is We're doing it right now. Yeah. It's not perfect but we're here.
0: Matt, how are you? Yeah, Matt, it's so good to have you.
1: Yeah, it's good to be
2: back on. Uh, Should be a fun intro.
1: Yeah, we got things to talk about. Megan, why don't you, uh, you set us up? for what we're going to talk about on Twitbits,
0: Yeah, so I wanted to bring Matt here because we've been texting and talking a little bit about um, what's been happening. And, and because with, with Elon Musk taking over Twitter, and, and here's the thing, we've talked about it on the podcast before, but... I feel like every day there's new shit happening. And I know Matt, you bring a different perspective because you have like the whole cybersecurity and tech perspective. And, um, and I also, there's been other conversation about activism and things like that, that we can get into also. But, um, I would love to just, if you want to kind of Matt, give us like a, you know, like a, just an update, a brief of where we're at now or like where you think we're at or kind of what your perspective is on how things are going today. Um, Reporting
1: live from on the ground.
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) So let me give you my bonafides. Uh, So I am a uh, computer science major dropout uh, who works in IT. My dad works as a software developer for, has worked for a number of companies and I have multiple Mutuals on Twitter who do software development, ops, stuff like that. So that's my perspective here. And basically everyone I know who has any understanding of the industry is, yeah, very, like, everything that's happening on Twitter is absolutely not what you should be doing if you're trying to run an organization like Twitter. It's just, it's the kind of things that all of us are very uh, dismal on for, like our outlook
0: well and i think one of the things like right off the bat is all of the layoffs and then even now they're trying to dial back and say like wait wait i think we laid off too many people and we have some important critical that, people but, that we need to bring back and it's kind of been scrambling for uh trying to that's always
2: funny because if, if you're a tech person who gets fired it's kind of a very powerful position to be in if your company comes hat in hand going like oh geez um so we kind of made a little whoopsie because it turned out that you're the only one who can do your job, and we can't fill it in a short time frames or put your responsibilities on anyone else. Would you think of uh, coming back uh, for? It's like, all right. So my hourly rate is now one thousand dollars cash up upfront. Uh, you will pay me everything I want and more because, like you've just admitted, I have all the cards. Like. Without me, your new project fails. Cool. Um, how valuable is that project to you? I get half. Like, yeah. It's just a. It's a very bad place for Twitter to be in, and it's definitely made like more likely by the fact that they like cut half the jobs there with one week of ownership, which means that Musk and his war cabinet, which consists of him and a bunch of venture capital dude bros like him who all bounce their terrible ideas off of each other and are completely untethered from normal reality. They're all like coming in after one week, they're like, oh, we know who we need to fire. And then they fire like half the company. They have no idea any of the things that they did there. And so now a lot of things are like, ah, so it turns out the project we were working on, yeah, we fired half the team that was working on it. So I don't know what to do now. and We got to rehire them, not good. And like a lot of the, a lot of the firings are just non-technical and irreplaceable. Like they fired basically everyone in the PR department. And those people often are people whose jobs are to develop relationships personally. Like they have like, as a part of their job, they have, you know, if they're with ad or with like communications, they're developing these long-term relationships with people And if you fire that person, that relationship is vaporized. So a lot of the like PR ad relationships, brand managers at Twitter are gone. And so everyone who was in contact with them is like, "Uh, I don't know who I'm talking to anymore. So uh, we're not in a relationship with Twitter anymore, which is apparently what happened with a lot of the ad brand stuff that's going on is, People are just like, I don't even know who I'm talking to at Twitter anymore because like the person I have as my point of contact, I called them and they said they've been fired. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know who I'm talking to. And until I can know who I'm talking to, I'm not comfortable investing any of my money in this platform. So uh, sort your stuff out, Twitter.
1: Yeah. And so much of it, so much of it feels like it's just, I don't know, the way the way that Elon does things is so trumpy and so like Connor oh, yeah, it it, it I mean... is it's almost like creating crisis in order to create more fodder to be able to blame more people and and it's almost like a strategy it's like well if we can create enough chaos then we can have enough like scapegoats to be able to blame what's happening. So you like, are like almost manufacturing the crisis to be able to then be like, oh, well this is why we're having these problems. It's all these other people's faults because I've stirred things up enough and created enough crisis to get the like, the the camera kind of off of me for a minute and look at all these other people that are causing problems. It's the ads team, it's whoever.
2: Yeah, it's it's activists are getting uh, all of our advertisers to cancel on us, which is that that's not my fault. I and mean, I like the interaction. If anyone saw it, uh, a member of the Vlog Brothers, Hank Green, who's kind of yes. a famous like minor internet celebrity because he's been he and his brother John have been like persistent figures on a variety of social media platforms for like over a decade now, uh, and. They both have like very solid reputations. Hey, Green is like a good activist for science and civic responsibility. And he replied to Elon with a very like even-handed, like, look, you are getting a lot of people nervous because like among other things, you shared obvious disinformation from a hoax site about Paul Pelosi and the guy who attacked him. Like very obviously from like this super sketchy website that did not look like anything reputable at all. And yeah, advertisers are scared. And Musk peevishly goes like, so Twitter should die then? (laughs) It's like, I mean, could you take responsibility for your actions? And like Hank Green replies with something along that line. And Musk just weirdly tells Hank, why don't you try Googling? Yeah. And like, it it was never clear what Elon wanted Hank Green to Google at all. Like, it was like, what what am I supposed to search for? try searching for something. I don't know. And it's like, but, like, it's like, also, he's getting in these fights. And it's like, you just bought a company for $44 billion. And you have, like, five crises facing it right now.
0: That he and created. And you're
2: spending half of your time getting in arguments on Twitter. Like, where are where are you physically right now, Elon? If you are not in, like, a meeting room with back-to-back-to-back-to-back meetings with all of the stakeholders you need to be talking to, what are you doing? And it's like, that's one of the things where I'm just like, this site is being micromanaged by someone who is also not managing it. Like he will be around to interfere with like all kinds of little projects, but he doesn't have any interest in long-term steady leadership at Twitter. He's just here to feel like the smartest boy in the room while also being very impulsive and very out of touch with reality. Yeah. And, and
0: so, well, and one of the things, um, I, it, it just, I feel like narcissism, it's the, it's, you know, baseline narcissism, right, right there. Um, but also one of the things I want to talk about is the whole like exit strategy. Cause I think there's people that are like, I'm here for good. I'm here until it, you know, it burns down. And then there's other people that are saying, you know, I'm just going to kind of watch and wait, and and there's people that have said like, hey, I've moved over here, and so I think there are people that are kind of trying to figure out like if if social media and if Twitter is a platform where you do the thing you do, um, is that going to change, and what will that look like? And I think there's there's a conversation about activism in there, and there's I've seen mm-hmm. a a lot of diverse voices weigh in on like, Hey, this has been the place where marginalized voices can be heard. And so if everyone leaves, that's, you know, like what, what's going to happen to that? And so, um, I know you've posted Matt about just like having an exit strategy and I'm curious your thoughts about that.
2: Yeah. So I would say like right now I'm just looking at like, okay, what other social media platforms are there? And it's like, there's stuff with Mastodon, But Mastodon is also kind of a complicated thing right now, and it's also having a lot of uh, growing pains with the massive influx of people from Twitter. Uh, So, like, that's one aspect of, like, will that be a viable future? We'll see. I'm currently, like, looking at doing things like uh, cross-mirroring my tweets onto my Mastodon profile to see if I can start building up a profile there. While also being on Twitter,
0: I'm going to pause you there for a second because I know Cortland before we started, um you had some thoughts about Mastodon that I thought were really interesting. Um, so before we continue with there, I want Cortland to weigh in
1: well, i and I'm curious, Matt, like you probably have more expertise in this area. But I feel like the decentralized nature of Mastodon is that that um is such that there isn't this algorithm driving content. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a little bit more, I guess, pure in the sense that like, you're not being fed this, you know, content into your feed that, you know, the algorithm thinks that you will engage with or uh, like, or get angry about, etc. And while there's part of that, that I think is really noble because I think this whole like, you know, rage driven social media algorithm is probably not healthy for many of us. There's also this aspect to me that like when I get on Mastodon, I'm like, I don't know how to find what I'm looking for. Like I'm so used to a platform that just like serves me stuff that I want to look at right in front of my face, you know. I get on TikTok. I don't even follow people on TikTok. I just swipe and it's like, "Wait, you're gay?" and, you know, <laughs> and it's like, "Here, let's show you gay videos." And it's like, I didn't even tell you. And and you know what I want? I feel like Mastodon makes it very tough to like find people unless I know specifically, "Yes, I'm going here to look for Matt's post and I know your handle and I know exactly how to find you." I'm never going to see you. I'm never going to find you. And that's hard for users. yes
2: yeah. i think that's definitely that is one of the flaws i've seen most discussed about mastodon as a part of its user experience like it's it's very different it's not twitter it's not a twitter clone it is its own thing it's focused on its unique traits of like being this federated social media where like your it's the idea was like what if you didn't have to leave a site to engage with other platforms. Like there's cross compatibility or you could like move from one site to another without having to delete your history, stuff like that, where it's like, cause like, if you go to Facebook or Twitter, you can't interact between the two na- naturally. You have to like post links to things. So there's like some of that stuff. It's very like, I've heard people describing it as it is the Linux of Social media, as opposed to like the windows of it, because it's like, yeah, it is very new user unfriendly. It's very like almost pretentious, and it's like, ah, I see that you are a slave of the big algorithm, social media. Come join us, where we're the free open source. It's like, shut up already! Like I don't even care. Like I I work with a lot of like Linuxy stuff, and even I sometimes get annoyed by the like the sort of pretentiousness of the free open source types. Even yeah. if they're right, it's kind of a little bit annoying. So I totally get that like the Macedon UX is just, it's not there yet. It definitely needs a lot of improvements. Like I basically don't even use it. I primarily just lock down my handle and I'm trying to figure out how to start using it. So I don't think it, I don't think Mastodon is going to be the perfect Twitter clone. And I think it does lack the discoverability and the sort of, uh, I don't know, what's the term, uh, it's basically uh, like the coincidences that like you would arrive into a Twitter space, like uh, uh, serendipity. Yes, yeah. Twitter really fed like this, like opportunity to like have these very unexpected interactions where you could be talking to a researcher who's a specialist in a field, or you could like meet people. I mean, that's how I've met a ton of people is through Twitter and accidentally finding them. And meanwhile, Mastodon is very much, especially if it's outside of your server, it's harder to find people. It's just, a nature of how it works. So yeah, there's there's pros and cons to the way Mastodon does a lot of the things. So currently we're seeing whether the pros will outweigh the cons. The other thing is it's just it's definitely not designed to scale the way Twitter is. So I don't think everyone will be able to land on Mastodon. And if everyone from Twitter tried to migrate to it, it would just break a lot of things because they just don't have the budget to scale to that level. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's other there's other places I'm looking at. Uh, Tumblr is having like a bit of a renaissance, so I'm going to see if I can post things there. Like, we might be seeing that. There's like other social media. There's ones I don't recommend. I don't recommend counter CounterSocial. Uh, that one is run by a guy who's like a, a pseudonymous hacker, but it's very much like you would basically have to trust this one guy who is anonymous with everything. Yeah. Mm. And it's like. Not a good situation. He also has a bit of a reputation for being like someone who overstates his reputation in the hacker community, which is kind of a no-no.
1: Yeah. Like he's yeah. he's
2: very like self-aggrandizing. Uh, that one is basically just a Mastodon clone and they don't interact with other Mastodon instances. So it's kind of another red flag. Uh, there's the tribal social media platform, but that one is started by a couple of people who are kind of like into the like... They are constantly soliciting donations and it's not entirely clear what effects they're having on politics versus lining their own pockets so i don't trust them either yeah, yeah. there's like a few other things where it's like
1: there's obviously don't know truth if i want to you know definitely don't do true social which is i Parlor. if i
2: remember correctly one of those trumpian ones that's just a mastodon fork too because they just mastodon platform is like an open tool anyone can use yeah. So they just like they didn't actually make a social network from scratch. They just cloned Mastodon and put a Trump sticker on it. That's basically all those platforms are.
1: Yep. Yeah. So well and and the thing is that like we're talking a lot about platform like usability and, you know, UX and like how a platform works and is run and that is all really important. However, I think the biggest thing that like your average Twitter user is feeling is like like it's user base, right? It's like, it's, it's, I'm not going to go anywhere that doesn't have Twitter's user base and have the Twitter experience. Yeah. It's just impossible. I think
2: that's the other part is every social media platform is more an aspect of the people involved, both the users and the like moderation social governance than it is about the technology. So we'll see if there are platforms that can maintain similar experiences, yeah, I think the other the, the biggest problem that I see with Twitter right now is that the experience that we've all had with Twitter so far is about to disappear in a lot of ways. Like with the rollout of the new Twitter blue with verification the way it's gonna be now, I see that Twitter is probably gonna become less and less usable for anyone who's not paying money.
0: Yeah. And I think that was where we get into like the equity piece, because I think, um, Mm -hmm. just seeing people have asked me like, what's kind of going to be your last straw. And I do think that what I'm trying to pay attention to is where the voices that I learn the most for, from are, are able to have an equitable chance to be heard. And so I think that if it becomes Mm -hmm. a situation where the algorithm, the algorithm is going to suppress people that aren't paying monthly, that aren't subscribers, Um, then it's going to be a question of, is it a place where people of color, people with disabilities, queer people are able to have a voice in, um, in, in, in that world, in the Twitter sphere (laughs) in a way that they can have the same impact that they've been able to have up until now. And so I think that's what I'm kind of trying to pay attention to. And, and maybe Mm -hmm. we'll ride out this wave and we'll see, you know, things will settle down a little bit. But I do kind of just am trying to pay attention. I'm just trying to kind of pay attention to what is what people are saying and where they think they will land um, so that I can kind of help continue to be in the business of harm reduction and elevating voices and amplifying voices and things like that. So
2: Yeah. And I think the other thing, the biggest thing that concerns me is also just the pace of how they're trying to like rapidly revamp Twitter. Yeah. Like within a week of Musk coming in, like they fire half the staff, but then they're also implementing a very like Musk approved crunch approach, which is like, all right, you work at Twitter, you are going to put in 84 hours a week. You're going to sleep at your desk. You're going to like push as hard as you can to get every new feature out within like, cause like the thing is like for some of the people I've been talking with, like, and I have, I haven't worked professionally as a developer, but I do know some of the process, like they're trying to roll out stuff in a week for like broad new features. Yeah. And in the tech world, there's like stuff like we call agile development, where it's like, all right, so you're going to like take a problem and you're going to break it down into little pieces. You're going to make sure that you're testing everything You're going to make sure that you're like planning out from the beginning. Like we get user input. We think about like, how will this feature work? How would it break? How could it be misused? We think of all of that. Then we start breaking each problem down. We work on it. We develop everything, make sure it's all fully tested. And then we slowly begin rolling it out. And so like with that, you would spend at least a week, even just thinking about a problem before you even begin addressing it. And, uh, like, my dad, who works as a programmer, likes to say, if you do not test your code, it is broken. And, meanwhile, Musk is like, you will ship this in one week or you are fired. Well, that tells me, like, okay, so they're definitely, we already know from some of the leaked internal information, they've just straight up discarded the idea of thinking about how a feature could be abused. Like, that section on internal reporting is now blank. Like, How could this feature help someone uh, like misuse our platform in ways we would not want them to? What steps can we take to prevent that? File not found. We're just skipping that now. It's like, that is going to lead to a lot of problems, but also like, oh yeah, they're definitely not going to be working on testing anymore, like making sure that unit tests work. They're not going to work on like cybersecurity considerations. All of these things are going to get thrown out of the window because the only thing that matters is shipping what they call the minimum viable product.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: On a platform with millions of users
1: yeah it's 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 weird to me it's strange to me that because musk has some experience with software right no. i mean he he didn't have point, any involvement in the paypal early development was that all peter Thiel? was he it's
2: basically at this point based off of how he's behaving where like he's trying to evaluate programmers based solely on like how many lines of code are you writing i'm like I don't think this guy knows anything about modern software development. I think his like a- assumption about how it works would be like completely alien to any competent developer. Like he thinks software is a matter of you you have a program that's going to need one hundred thousand lines of code, so you write lines of code until you hit one hundred thousand, and that's what you <laughs> ship. And it's like that is not. A lot of programmers <laughs> wear a badge of honor of like how many lines of code do I ha- write? I write negative lines of code. Yeah. I take code that exists. And I delete lines from it because I fix it to make it better. Yeah. Like, oh, this whole thing. Wow. We can fix this by like breaking it down into just this thing. I just deleted 700 lines of code from my latest commit. Like that is a like thing where like, or like programmers, like, look, I don't write a hundred lines of code if I can write 10 because the 10 lines I write will be better. And it's like, that's my dad's approach. It's like, yeah, I don't think he, I don't think he understands it. I think his assumption of how things work is very strange
1: yeah, and I think it's i i I do think it's funny that like i I definitely have experience with like some like very, 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 very small development. Um, I don't consider myself a developer, um but I am friends with a lot of people who are. I think you also are kind of in that same boat. Um, and still, both of us who like acknowledge like how much we don't know still are able to go like, oh man, like there's so many red flags. It's so funny how, like, does Elon not have anybody in his life going, hey, bro, like, uh, maybe you, you know? He doesn't. It's his
2: his entire, like, group of people he has advising him on his Twitter takeover are all, like, venture capital guys who are just as weird as he is, where they're all, like, I spent some money and one of the companies I invested in didn't go bankrupt. It got bought by Google. And then three years later, all of the employees were shunted off to another project when it was shut down. Uh, So I have some thoughts about how businesses should all run. And it's like all these very profoundly weird guys who are also like very misogynist and racist and all these other things. Those are the people who are all advising Musk and his inner council. Yeah. So... It's, it is like, it's very, very bad.
0: It's very Trumpy. It's very marked riskily too. (laughs) I I don't know.
2: Yeah. It's it's very much that, that archetype, I think. And that's one of the reasons why I'm just like, yeah, there's a high risk that Twitter is just going to completely come apart at the seams because like these people don't know how to run the business at any layer. So yeah, like we, the reason I'm pulling like this exit strategy is like, I don't want to have to be at a point where I'm panicking after Twitter is like melting down. But I'm also like, there's a chance that one day we're going to wake up, Twitter will not work. Yeah. Like you'll try and be like, uh, le- uh, okay, I can't log in at all. Like, and it's like, then it's like, well, uh, oh, how do I reach that person I know who uh, I was DMing with? Because we only talked on Twitter. It's like I'm trying to like avoid that, and I'm advising other people to like just make sure you're reaching out to people you want to stay in contact with going forward, because. There is a non-zero chance that one day we're going to wake up and Twitter is gone.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that that really like, plays into what Megan has brought up a few times and we've been talking about a lot is like, I don't think it's as much about like what we as users need. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Megan, or if you feel differently. But like, I don't feel like it's as much about what we need to do as users to like push Twitter or like do something from an activist perspective as much as it is just like be prepared for like whatever might happen.
0: Yeah, I know. I think that's true. And I think ultimately the way that we use Twitter is right now, the way that I use Twitter and the way that Cortland and I have been using it with the podcast is just really to continue to build the connections and community Mm -hmm. that we have found there. And if it, if it continues to work there, then we'll be there. And if it seems like it, there's too many barriers, then we'll find other ways to do that. Um, but right now, we're we're not going anywhere. We're here. We're going to still yeah. do our Twitter spaces on Tuesday mornings. Um, I do have a Discord for the book club. Um, we just announced our next book is The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cohn, which Um, I've already started and is amazing, but I just, um, I, yeah, I just wanted to have this conversation to kind of just talk about some of this stuff. And then also I think it, it really leads well into the conversation that, um, we had with Tim from the new evangelicals, which we're about to, um, have on this episode right now. So I think this is a good segue.
1: Yeah. Matt, thank you. I just want to say thank you for coming on and hanging out with us. And if you haven't, if you're listening to this intro and you haven't listened to our episode that we did with Matt, the Snarky Gent, it was last season. It's a great episode. It's been on our top 10 most listened to episodes for pretty much since it aired. And uh, you should go check that one out because it's really good. Yeah. All right.
0: Let's get into the episode.
1: Another episode. We have... A guest that I'm really excited about with us here. Megan, first you say hello. You're here.
0: Hello, I'm here. And I am also excited about our guest. We have Tim from the New Evangelicals here.
3: Hi. <laughs> Tim, Hi. welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, we really appreciate you taking the time and being here with us. So we've got shit to talk about. There's a ton of stuff happening. And, uh, you are, you know, in tons of different conversations around the web, uh, and I have no idea exactly where we want to start. Megan's probably got some ideas. Do we want to start with a a brief overview?
0: Yeah. Just give us a little bit of context for our listeners before we dive into all the list of all the things that that we said we wanted to (laughs) chat with you about, um, just to kind of give us some background of how you got into this space.
3: Yeah, I mean, the the long story short is that um, I grew up in evangelical spaces and um, Donald Trump in 2016 was kind of the catalyst of me going, um, something's wrong in my faith tradition. You know, the people who raised me are telling me to vote for the guy on the cover of Playboy, but they taught me about sexual purity and now they're mad that I won't vote for this guy. So that was kind of like the beginning of me deeply rethinking things. And then um, with um, you know 2020 and COVID and, and Black Lives Matter, just how the church responded to that was kind of a wake up call uh, for me where I said, you know what, I think we need like a new evangelical movement. I didn't know what I was getting into then. I didn't know that, that the term deconstruction was a thing. I didn't know that that accounts existed on the internet already doing this work I just kind of fell into this space um, and you know that's kind of how everything started at the moment but essentially what we do now the new evangelicals the way we define ourselves is that we're a nonprofit organization We're Jesus centered and we're inclusive and we do three things we advocate for folks marginalized I'm sorry we advocate for accountability uh, in the evangelical spaces we hold space for folks marginalized by the evangelical church and we help people who want to uh, to explore the Christian tradition outside the basement of evangelicalism. So we're not here to tell people that if you are quote unquote deconstructing, you have to stay Christian. I get my, my, folks take the off ramp. I decided to stay in, um, and walking out of the basement. I found more beauty than ever. And we help people who want to do that same thing, explore the Christian tradition. So we do those three things primarily online.
0: Awesome.
1: Cool. Um, yeah. And you are like, uh creating all kinds of i wanted to say spicy content but that has a different connotation uh on the internet uh it's not that kind of spicy but you're 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 ruffling feathers uh and kind of getting into some conversations and calling some people out i that's that's really how i kind of came uh across your stuff originally i think was like this account that was like no uh fear to like jump into a conversation and be like
3: hey what the fuck Yeah, you know, a lot of our stuff is on uh, that Twitter is really that kind of space for us. Right. Where I'm kind of nipping at the heels of some of these these larger accounts and just saying, hey, we're here and we see what you're what you're saying. And it's 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 nonsense. Our Instagram is more of that community side. We have a private Facebook community. We do a podcast. So we we, kind of try and flesh out those three pillars that I laid out in different ways. But yeah, Twitter for sure uh, is probably where some of our quote unquote spiciest content would be. No feed picks, but definitely (laughs) a lot of a lot of, you know, um, hot takes, I guess you could say, uh, um, at evangelical leaders and gatekeepers.
0: Yeah, I well, and so one of the reasons that I wanted to also have a conversation is because I know that you have defined that the word evangelical has a different meaning, not always the same um, for you that it carries for I think everyone, and so I know the first time that we interacted. Um, I, I always love that. I, I reached out to you to be like, Hey, I just realized I tweeted out something exactly the same that you tweeted out like a month ago. And I apologized. And you were like, Hey, no problem. That's great. And I was like, and by the way, why do you use the word evangelical? (laughs) And you jumped on a zoom with me and we had a great conversation about that. And so, um, I tweeted out recently, um, like a week or two ago, like, what do you think of when you hear the word evangelical? And and there were almost 500 replies, and they were all negative. And, mm-hmm. and it was so interesting. It was like authoritarianism, patriarchy, racism, whiteness, um, you know all of these things. And so I'm just curious like as someone who has that has that term as part of your name as part of who you are and, and, and you I, I feel like redefining that and, and kind of saying like this is actually who we are, not that. And so I'm curious kind of where that comes from and what that history is for you.
3: Yeah, you know, again, when I first started the account on Instagram, I, we weren't a nonprofit. I didn't really know what I was stumbling into. I, I myself had had so few categories for um, things I didn't know about then that I do now. But um, I, I think there's a, lot, a couple layers to that. Number one, I, I fully understand why the name evangelical is a shitty name. Can we just say that? Like, and this is not new. There's a book by the Barna Group. From 2005 they're a big research firm where they demonstrated decades ago now that 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 the term evangelical has a negative association uh homophobic too political at the time you know you you know anti-intellectual etc i understand that it is valid um however two things number one i am too damn stubborn to give the name over to fundamentalists completely. And number two, there is a tradition of, especially early evangelicals, um, in the Wesleyan tradition, who were quite radical badasses. Um, abolitionist, uh, you know, egalitarian, incredibly feminist, uh, anti-capitalism. There's actually a great book on this called Discovering an Evangelical Heritage by Donald Dayton. It's a very short book. But man, like, I-, I read this book and I'm like, Yes, these are the people I wanna be. I mean, there's a story of a couple who gets married, and the wife goes, I'm not giving up my last name. I'm not gonna be your property, we're gonna be co-equals in this marriage, or else I'm gonna bounce. And the guy's like, Sounds good. I'm like, Yes. And this this is like in the 1800s, okay? So the word evangelical ultimately just means someone who brings good news, and I think that evangelicals don't bring good news anymore. They bring a lot of death, a lot of uh, hate, a lot of you know propaganda, and so I, I'm 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 taking a swing and just trying to say no, you can't have the term, you can't, you've already redefined it. I mean, the term didn't always mean what it means now. And so we're going to re-redefine it and try and get it back in a way and try and let people know that, hey, not all evangelicals are like this, even though we fully admit that that the dominant culture in America of evangelicalism is incredibly problematic. So that, that's not me saying, you know, not everyone, so to speak. I, I totally get the, the critique. We critique it a ton, uh, but we are trying to do our best to reclaim it. Whether it's successful or not, only history will tell. You know, this might be one of those. And then they reclaimed it, and things were good. Or, wow, that guy was naive, and look, nothing changed. But I'm certainly going to try. Yeah.
1: So do you think, like, I think there we've had a lot of conversations with people with similar stories, whether it was 2016 and the election and Donald Trump, or whether it was, you know, COVID, uh, and then, you know, January 6th, and, you know, the various things that happened. You know, there's all, like we could name 10, you know, big moments over the last two to three years. Totally. That were in churches or in evangelical spaces or had evangelical identity who had this moment of like, oh, that's not me, I'm not this. Uh, And do you think that there is still people within these systems? I mean, I've gotta believe that there is who maybe see content from you and say, "Yeah, that kind of lines up a little bit more than what I'm seeing in my church, in my denomination, or whatever. It's easy for people like me, I guess, to think that everybody in it is just bought, you know, bought in a hundred percent and you know, are almost kind of the enemy. but i, I I've got to imagine mm. there's a lot of people still in evangelicalism who don't want to be represented by the people who I think of when I think evangelicalism
3: yeah i i think that's a fair assessment um i talked to a few people who um are maybe more prominent in those spaces via dm um that 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 say hey love the work you're doing i think it's necessary so that's helpful but you know i think that there are i i do separate leaders from followers in those spaces now certainly this is nuanced and complicated so it's not it's not, um, you know, uh, either or. It can be both and at times. But I think a lot of people in the pews don't understand. The waters are swimming in. I mean, I certainly didn't. I I I swallowed, you know, everything hook, line, and sinker, thinking, yeah, we're on the same page here. We love Jesus. We want to love people. We take the Bible seriously. But we we want to be devoted Christians. Um, and I think a lot of folks are in those spaces thinking that, not understanding who their leaders are attached to, what their affiliations look like, what their theology actually leads to. So I think as as things happen. Uh, people will, will find our content and say, wow, you know, maybe I'm not where you are, but I'm kind of curious. And I, listen, I was there. I think all of us at some point who grew up in evangelical spaces had that moment of, I can't see how that person got that far from where I am, but I'm curious, you know? And so we try and be essentially the way, the way we view it is we think that, that people who decide to leave the basement of evangelicalism and walk up the stairs, we want to be that first room say, look, like you're safe, you can breathe up here. There's actually a whole house of Christian thought way outside of the evangelical basement. Um, and and we can help you explore that if you want. So we try and hold space in particular in like that first, oh my God, what do I do now? How do I find community? How do I find belief again if I if I want that? So I, I would say yes to your answer. People are definitely thinking that, but they, it's just complicated. Like some people in those spaces hate the work that we do, you know, and they, they make it very, they make you. They make us very aware of that. But I think a lot of folks are are at least curious.
0: I think that's a good uh, explanation because I think I certainly was one of those people that just didn't understand. And I think just having the clarity, like you're saying, um, and understanding really when you have clarity to see exactly how queer people are treated and exactly what it mean, what complementarianism is, and exactly all of those things. Um, I think that is where you start to see and have those questions, right? And so I think even people that might not be quote-unquote deconstructing still are people that might have those questions but not have that clarity right now. And so I think that's um, a good way to describe it. I'm curious too because I've had conversations with people where we've said like you know growing up it's not like we identified as evangelical right we like we we just kind of say we're christian a lot of people you know and so i think yeah. that right now what you're seeing is like there's this distinction between you know critiques of evangelicalism and critiques of christianity and i i just want to ex- like dive into that a little bit more because i think that um it's it's an important distinction to make while we're holding space for Christian traditions that, that are so much more expansive than evangelicalism. And so I'm curious about your thoughts about that.
3: Yes. I mean, if there's one bubble to pop, it's that bubble that I think I grew up in. I'm not sure about, about you two, but of, of, oh yeah, I'm I'm just Christian like what's, what's evangelical. This is just what a true Christian does. Right. Yeah, I mean, I would say
1: the normal kind. They'd be like, I'm right, the normal exactly. kind.
3: Right. <laughs> right. I mean, the, 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 term I would use is, is I take the gospel seriously. You know, yeah. I take the Bible seriously. I'm a Bible believing Christian. I'm not like one of those Catholics who believes in workspace salvation. I believe in the true gospel. Right? So there's, there's this inherent supremacy complex built in to the modern American evangelical framework theologically that we have not even just a truth globally out of any religion, but even out of our own re- our, our own religion, we have a specific truth inside that stream, right? So, so it's important to recognize that what I think a lot of us are, have come out of and are critiquing is a very specific brand of Christian thinking, and I think we can get in trouble uh, for sometimes. And again, to each his own. I do my best to be very specific because the Christian tradition is 2,000 years old, it spans hundreds of cultures, hundreds of languages, uh, different periods of, hi- of history, and there are brilliant thinkers, theologians, saints, so to speak, who have done amazing things. Now, there have also been a lot of people, historically, have done a lot of bad things, okay? Um, so I'm certainly not saying that it's all been good, but but to, to say, um oh my god i grew up an evangelical therefore christianity is bullshit i just don't think is a fair assessment now if you keep exploring you say listen this whole belief in god thing the jesus resurrection thing it's not for me i totally understand that but but i think sometimes people leave the basement and go that was the whole house and i go well To be fair, I don't think it's the whole house, but I understand it's a very traumatic part of Christian thinking that does a lot of damage. So I understand why you don't wanna be in the house anymore. I totally get that. But I think you're absolutely right. uh, when it comes to separating that we grew up or I grew up in American evangelical thinking, which is a very specific way of thinking about the Bible, the Christian tradition, and really does not have, um, perspective or have the awareness of the other parts of the Christian tradition that are also faithful. And I would argue some ways way more faithful to the calling of Jesus, uh, yet because of their supremacy complex, right? What they'll say is, well, no, they're just, they're too liberal. They don't take the Bible seriously. Their theology is not correct because it's not R.C. Sproul or, you know, John MacArthur or something like that. And then we get into a lot of trouble from there.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, I didn't know if, Cortland, you were going to jump in there. but I, I always have also... something, but
3: I'm waiting
1: to to see if you had something. <laughs> no, I mean, I you said
0: John MacArthur, and I feel like you have shit to say about John Every MacArthur. Every hair on the back of
1: my neck stood up when you said John I, MacArthur. I, was like, I
0: know.
3: I, I, I'm with you. I, I got through Halloween, we've... and then this is the scariest thing that I've heard. We um we we have critiqued oh my god we've done so many videos on John MacArthur and really he is just a very dehumanizing person um a hundred percent unfortunately he is still loved and adored and platformed in these evangelical spaces and people see him as one of these well he protects the true gospel which really makes it that much more I would argue uh, damaging and despicable considering the lack of accountability he has after he hired three men who were pedophiles on his staff. And never addressed it. So, anyway, I could be there forever talking about that because that stuff burns me the fuck up, honestly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and
1: like, so, so another thing that I think I've listened to you talk about, I listened to an episode of the New Evangelicals podcast a while back where you were talking to somebody who was at Charlie Kirk's faith leader, whatever the hell, Turning Point. Oh, the Summit. Pastor Summit? Yeah, yeah. Mm hmm. And it was really interesting to hear you and and that that guest you had talk about, you know, Charlie Kirk's origin uh, and kind of like a very different uh, position uh, to some extent. Um, I think you even mentioned uh, him having like a prominent gay man on his high-level staff or like that he was working with um, at one point, or your guest did, Um, anyway but has slowly kind of shifted to the more extreme end to appeal to this evangelical leadership base or whatever, from a political Mm -hmm. sense. I, I'm, I guess I'm curious to know, like how much from your assessment and seeing, you know, the various different aspects of evangelicalism, how much of this is about power in politics and how much of it is motivated by a, I, you know, hate to say the word genuine, but a more genuine actual, like love for the gospel or love for wanting to be truly Bible based or whatever. Cause I feel like there's two different types of people there.
0: Can I uh, interject yeah. and say, you need to say quote unquote when you're using air quotes? I know. I do that
1: it. all the time. No one can see that I'm saying it. I said normal the other day, and she was like, You're air quoting when you say normal because normal doesn't exist. And well, I was
0: like, okay. air quotes of yeah. genuine, but go ahead. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah. Thank well, you, I'm Megan. glad
3: we're not on camera because I'm drinking out of my own TNE mug, and it looks really, <laughs> really chintzy to do that. So I'm glad it wasn't even intentional. I just, it's just the mug I grabbed, and I'm like, Oh, brand. shit. I'm drinking out of my own merch mug. That's so shitty. <laughs> um, anyway so this is a very deep and complicated topic and here's why if we're talking about evangelical leaders and gatekeepers it's about power and control if it's about your average Joe Schmo in the average pew they don't realize that it's about power and control okay yes, so yeah. so Charlie Kirk is one of those people who was actually radicalized by a Calvary pastor named Rob McCoy, who essentially said, Charlie, your politics are great, but if you're a Christian, why don't you bring your poly- your Christian thinking into the, in the into the political square? That's how this whole thing thing kind of got started with, with Charlie only a few years ago. He was much more libertarian. Now he's full on Christian nationalist. I mean, it, it's a disaster, but we must understand, and I just talked about this today because the Jerry Falwell documentary came out. Um, yeah, I want to hear ago. you talk some about that too. And it's just a reminder that, that, that these men simply use Christianity as a Trojan horse for power and control, which is a good reminder that anything can be co-opted for abuse. Okay, the Bible. Joe Lumen says this all the time. The Bible can be used as a tool for liberation or a weapon of oppression. And so these men take these things. They take you know a, a religion and they use it as a way to maintain power control and to fuel their greed. Um, and so the leaders themselves are—they absolutely know what they're doing, or they've convinced themselves that's about the gospel while they maintain that power and control. Um, it's one of the two but all roads lead to power and control John MacArthur is another great example of this if he really gave a shit about children right If he really cared about kids and sexual purity and he hired three different men who all you know trigger warning it's sexual abuse language here but they molested either their own children or other children and and John covered it up I don't want to hear John talk about the gospel and sexual purity and about how, how we have to protect children it's bullshit because John couldn't do it in his own church and still will not address the very well documented has the receipts has the emails has the 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 uh, the confessions has John MacArthur's own damn handwriting right he will not address these things and the culture around him the leaders around him will not hold him accountable so these leaders they all are friends with each other they all shake hands they all they might not do it publicly but behind the scenes they all know John MacArthur has not lost a book deal. He hasn't lost anything, even though his church under his leadership, remember in these spaces, leaders matter, right? Leaders are held to a higher standard. So under John's leadership, three different men were hired who molested children, no accountability. It's bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. And we can go down the list, Mark Driscoll, Jerry Falwell, et cetera. This is, this is the norm, not the exception. And there's very little, if any, accountability in a case after case, example after example.
0: Well, and I think um, to take that just like one step further, because I know after Jesus and John Wayne came out, a lot of people were like, Oh, the the response, and I've talked about this on the podcast before. The response is a church called Tove, right? And and Scott McKnight and in in this. And it was just basically taking each of these cases and saying, Oh, like this one case, this is kind of what went wrong in with Mars Hill and Driscoll and this one case. And um, you know, these are some things that the church could do better. And um, I felt like it fell massively short of critiquing evangelicalism as a whole. And I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but it just felt like it was saying, okay, maybe there's some power issues with that church. And maybe like if we had more of a Mr. Rogers type of, you know, like which nothing against Mr. Rogers, but just more of that type of like kindness and goodness, then we're going to be fine. Nothing was said about the way queer people are treated in that entire book. And so like there's certain things that I feel like you can take those cases that you said and I feel like people try to to put those cases and say, okay, even if I'm willing to critique John MacArthur, even if I'm willing to critique these leaders that are celebrities, um, I'm never going to kind of poke at evangelicalism as a whole. And so I'm curious what you think about that because I think there are people that are, are like, I am willing to say that they fucked up. But um, th- like at- then there's kind of a limit to how yeah. willing they are to have cris- the, ri-
1: the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast is another great example of like, you know, oh, you were so close to actually like talking about the issue and then you sidestepped it.
3: Yeah. You know, I, first of all, I think both of your critiques are really valid. And then I think about my friend who kind of knows what I do, but like, is still friendly in evangelical circles. And she said to me the other day, Hey, have you heard of this podcast, the rise and fall of Mars? So I'm like, yes. And she goes, well, I just started listening to it. I had no idea. It's been really making me think. And I'm like, okay, I'm glad to hear it. Right. So I'm like, that's great. I hope this causes that person to think. But at the same time, I agree with, with both of your assessments where it's like, well, I'm really glad that we spent 20 episodes unpacking the abuse of Mark Driscoll, but guess what? He's still platform. He's still preaching. He's still lying. He's praying over gubernatorial candidates. Now like Carrie Lake, he prayed over her the other day. So nothing has changed. Like, I guess it might've felt good to talk about it, but there's no accountability. And like you both said, I think you're right. There is a systemic nature to this because the way the evangelical church is set up, it's more built on capitalist CEO, structures. It's not really built on a, on the way I phrase it is it's event centered versus community centered. So I tell people all the time, listen, I love the church. I'm not even critiquing the church. I'm critiquing the systems that we've mapped onto the church that we call evangelical culture in 2022 that have held the church hostage for so long by making it a product, a show, an event that have structured themselves as as this like top-down hierarchy. Uh, to to and I don't want to trigger your audience, but to, to be quote-unquote biblical about it, you look at Ephesians, there's a five-fold ministry leadership structure built right into the concept. Like, hey, some are apostles, some are teachers, some are this, some are that. That's the model I see. Like, have people led together, but this evangelical structure, I think lends itself to this top down system. When you combine that with celebrity culture, you get these people where these entire brands are built around them. They have to produce this product and it ruins them and the people that they quote unquote shepherd. I mean, one thing about Mark Driscoll that really shocked me in the, in the podcast was that they talk about him before he became who he is, where he's like, yeah, I have to be careful about this. You know, I want to have pure motives. I'm going in this with like a clean heart. And then you just watch like this descent from like that Mark to who Mark is now. And obviously responsibility matters and accountability matters and Mark has to own up to that. But I do wonder like, how healthy is it for anyone in those positions? (laughs) You know, like what does it actually do to them as human beings as well? So again, complicated a lot there, but I agree with both of you. actual culture, the framework, what, how the church is structured inherently leads itself to abusive structures, uh, systems, abusive practices with very little accountability.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I would love to, to talk a little bit about like, as you're engaging with these leaders, with the culture, as you're calling things out, as you're calling for accountability, uh, how do how do you balance engaging and having conversation versus platforming or you know I feel like there's nuance there like I just recently had an exchange on on Twitter uh, Sean McDowell I I think is his name I actually I he never replied back he replied oh, to a tweet. I it's replied like, back what? to him and was like, yeah, let's have a conversation. And then, yeah, I, and I'm sure I will never hear from him again. And I had a lot of people, you know, validly say, you know, he can fuck off into the sun. I would never listen to a conversation. I would never have the conversation. Part of me was like, I don't, I don't know that he's ever had a conversation with somebody like me. I don't, I don't know that he would. Um, and I would be interested to have the conversation. Maybe if I did, I would then be in the camp. With these other people that says, yeah, that was a huge waste of time, or that ended up platforming him far more than it helped anybody. Where have you? I'm sure that you've navigated this, and so I'm kind of curious, you know, what your experience has been in I,
0: that. I want to jump in you before something? you before you jump in, Tim. I just want to say because in that thread that I think you were part of, Cortland, I saw people say like, why can't we have? these spaces where people disagree and people have conversation and they're, you know, they're able to have these conversations without it being toxic. And um, I I definitely think there's power and privilege dynamics that happen in those spaces and that like, it's not just a simple disagreement. And so I had more thoughts about that, but I think within that, um, within that kind of holding that tension of how to engage without platforming somebody, I think there's that piece of also where is the room for Um, having a conversation from two different sides when there is a power and privilege dynamic there?
3: Yeah, I think context matters. Um, It depends on what the conversation is about and who you're talking to. So I'll just be fully transparent. We as an organization are committed to good faith dialogue. I will have good faith dialogue with almost anyone privately and sometimes I'll do it publicly depending on who it is. There's been, there was one time where I interviewed someone on our podcast that it was so bad, it was so dehumanizing, I said, I cannot, I cannot share this. It, it was, it was incredible. He was racist. It was horrible. I, I went to bed with a, a, a pit in my stomach saying, oh my God, like, what did I do? I, this is not appropriate. Now, here's why it wasn't appropriate. Who's it going to help? No one. It was only gonna dehumanize other people. There are other people that like, I just talked to a guy named David Griffin, who he's a pastor in somewhere in Texas. He pulled up one of my clips from TikTok and kind of a montage, and then did a whole sermon on deconstruction. I said, hey, you wanna come on the show and have a good faith dialogue? Here's other episodes I've done with people who I don't agree with, we can talk about it. He came on, we had a great good faith dialogue for an hour. That was that some people loved it, actually most loved it. And some said, hey, it wasn't my cup of tea, but thanks for doing it. We're always willing, um, as long as it's appropriate, you know, I'm not going to talk to a white supremacist on our podcast. Again, our community doesn't need to hear that, but for folks like, like some of these Sean McDowell types or these, these pastors who I don't think they understand what's really going on, I will always extend the invitation to talk. The other side of this is that sometimes I get invited in places that I tell my community, Hey, if you are in our space. This might not be a safe conversation for you, but I'm going to have it because I need to advocate for, for, for people in our space and let people know that new evangelicals are here to stay and that we have perspectives. We're going to, we're going to advocate for them. So one example of this is I did, uh, uh, this guy named Honest Youth Pastor. He's on Instagram. He invited me to a conversation. Oh, I know him. He invited me to you a conversation. You had a conversation with him? No, not with, well, he, yeah, that, but hold on. I've had him on the podcast a long time ago. That's All already right. been, that's been done. He invited me to talk to Stephen Wolf. You know who he is?
1: Yeah, I know who he is too, yeah. So I went wow. on,
3: I went on his show and I told the, my community, hey, giving you a heads up right now, this is who Stephen Wolf is. He's not safe. I don't trust him. But someone needs to have the conversation and at least advocate for our perspective in this arena. So I did. I absolutely did it. But that's what our organization does. And we never tell people that that, that they have to listen to those conversations if it will not benefit them. Um, as far as the platforming thing, you know, we're in a lot of ways the smaller Account. So to me, like the platform is not mine that I'm platforming. If anything, they're platforming me because I'm the smaller account in front of a bigger audience. So that's how I see it. But I think there's nuance, there's wisdom you have to use. You have to listen to our community. One time I did an Instagram live with someone that went really bad live. And I'm like, oh shit, this is not going good. And someone who I trust called me out in the DM said, hey, that was not good. That was not safe. I said, you're right. I have to rethink how I have these conversations. So now we just give a little more context. Hey, just be aware this, that, and the other thing. Maybe this is for you. Maybe it's not, but hopefully it helps someone. And usually so far out of the five or six conversations we've had, they've all been helpful for people, which is nice. Yeah. I, th-
0: I, I want to just like dial in for a second. And then Cortland, I want to go to your question, but on what you said, when somebody in your DMS said something, because I've always known that about you is that you're somebody that is open to feedback and open to critical feedback. And it's something that I've heard about you from other people too. And and so I think that that is an important piece of navigating this space is being able and willing to show up for the conversation, even if it's hard and even if it's, you know, because I feel like I've seen you be really responsive to people that are saying like, Hey, this is kind of where my needs are. This is kind of what, you know, where I'm coming from and to, and doing that in a way where, um, you're, you're listening to the voices that don't often, don't often get heard, Right. And so I really, that's something I really appreciate about you. And, um, I know Cortland, you had a question too, but I just wanted to, to pause there. Go ahead, Tim.
3: Yeah, for sure. I appreciate that. That's super kind. Yeah. I, I want this is actually a great thing that I think should be clarified. You know, people will, will ask, well, who, who's welcome at the new evangelicals? And really we say, listen, almost anyone, but, we prioritize the voices of the folks marginalized by the evangelical church. So if let's just say someone comes to our, our, our private Facebook community, they agree to our rules and let's say they're a Trump supporter. Okay. They're welcome to be there as long as they understand, which we say in our rules, that we're gonna prioritize other voices over there. So if they say something that gets someone really offended, we're gonna say, hey, this is a chance for you to learn now and to not be in the position of power that you're used to being in, right? So that's how we kind of do our best to kind of have this merging of we are open, we wanna have good faith dialogue, but we definitely have a perspective and we have a priority. So even the conversations I have, I think about it through that lens of like, okay, there are some folks who are like, man, that conversation you had, I never had those words. Thank you for telling that pastor that thing because he needed to hear it. I'm like, you're welcome. I'm glad I could advocate for you in that moment because you know, you were marginalized by the evangelical church. So that's kind of the threshold. That's, that's my main uh, framework that I operate in and that our community operates in. So people are welcome, but we prioritize those voices. So when someone comes to me, And says hey ma'am as someone who is marginalized by the evangelical church or hey you know as someone whatever it is this was really hurtful for me and i think this was a bad move i as the person who's a creator slash facilitator of the space has an obligation to be accountable to my own community am i accountable to the trump guy no definitely not am i accountable to the person's like hey um you know you hold your microphone weird no I don't care about that, but am I accountable to the person who's like, hey, you know, as someone who's been really harmed by folks in these spaces, the way you worded, the, worded this really triggered me and here's why, I have an obligation to at least listen and have the conversation. Maybe we don't agree at the end of the day, but I still have an obligation to listen and to hear the concern and to make sure that we're on the same page regardless. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, for sure, I, and, and I think that, you know, to Megan's point,
1: you know, we've had people you know, on this show, who have you know brought your name up as? Hey, Tim's a person who who does this. Joe Lumen, who you know uh, has been on the show a couple times, is I know uh, us too. We love Joe. She's consistently you know engaging in conversations. Uh, I mean, I saw it was a, a couple months ago. Uh, she had said something about you know you got to stand up and walk away or something, and and somebody who was being a total dick and I think slightly racist. Uh said, Hey, this is ableist. I'm in a wheelchair. You, you know, are saying the same. Oh. Mm-hmm. And she was like, absolutely. Like, I, like, I'm called on that. I definitely realize I can use different language, and you're a hundred percent right. Even to somebody who was definitely wrong in the, the in the in the point of the argument, uh, she could still step away and go, Hey, in this space right here, what you're talking about here, I can apologize, I can be genuine about that there is more than one conversation happening and i think that that's the internet tends to be a place that really drives a very focused monolith you know in terms of conversations and we're talking about one topic um but the reality is people organizations cultures are not single issue they're not you know one thing uh there's oftentimes lots of different dynamics at play and we talk a lot uh, on this podcast about intersectionality and all the different various aspects of marginalization. Um, and so I think that that's super valuable. And and I also think that it puts people at ease when they are able to hear somebody or see somebody on Twitter or on a podcast who identifies or realizes, like, you don't have to have it all figured out to to get into the conversation. Like, you're going to mm. have to make course corrections as you go. Right,
3: right. Yeah. And, I mean, and, repentance is a gift to do better, you know? So it's just that simple g- for me. Exactly, exactly. Um, I'm kind
1: of wanting to move into maybe the community piece. I know that was something that we talked about, um, and, you know, we've pulled in topics around that, uh, you know, with the Facebook group that you have going and Instagram and what you're creating there. How, how, I guess, how is it that, how, how has your experience been with being able to create community and how much of the time are, I guess you having to deal with people wanting to make you into a new church and make you their new pastor?
3: Oh, yeah. Well, a couple of things about that. I, I honestly really struggle with the term community over these digital spaces. Um, I was really fortunate in my early or late teens, early twenties to be part of like, a um, young adults community that wasn't part of a church, but we were just kind of our own thing. And it just really ruined the idea because everything went so well. We were so close, like in proximity to each other. Um, and I think one of the dangers of digital spaces is that you can kind of craft who you want people to think that you are. Um, and so I just wonder like how how genuine is it always? I do my, I mean, on a personal level, I do my best to be as transparent as open and open with people, but there's still a time where I'm not on the camera, right? There's still a time where my phone is down, I'm with my family and I'm actually in person with people. And so I, I struggle with like, how do we do this digitally? And that I'm not the only person thinking about this. I mean, this is like a challenge I think in general, especially during a pandemic. And a lot of us are now out of church spaces, which were kind of those hubs for some sense of community. I mean, the reality, right? Is that the three of us spent two weeks together in a cabin. It's only a matter of time before we start getting on each other's nerves. Like then what do we do? How do we actually have healthy conflict that resolves in a healthy way? I think sometimes we get afraid of those things because we were never taught in evangelical spaces how to deal with conflict in a healthy life giving way, but only to shut down and run or to double down and never admit wrongdoing, right? So I think that I get concerned sometimes where it's like, hey guys, we're doing our best to form these like, you know, local um, digital spaces, but we also have to realize that we are behind a keyboard, we are behind a phone. And so we have to understand that, you know, if we meet in person sometime, there might be some friction and that could be fine. It doesn't have to be bad automatically, but we have to be aware of that. So I just think that that, that, that's worth mentioning um, that I do struggle with like this community digital thing um, and I'm still kind of flushing it out. But as far as what you said, Cortland, I think that's such a great point because I think we can all say that, Just because we're in these different quote unquote, deconstructing spaces. Does not mean that we can't rebuild harmful evangelical systems because let's face it, that's what taught us how to do this kind of stuff. Like I, I know what PCO is. I know how to build Ableton set lists. Like I'm a musician in the church. I know how to get a small group together. I know how to organize volunteers because evangelical megachurch culture taught me how to do those things. Right. And we can inadvertently do that just with a different skin and still be very problematic. Um, it's it's quite possible, right? Just because someone is, is um, deconstructing or they have a large number in front of their Instagram handle or their TikTok handle does not automatically uh, mean that they're safe or trustworthy or being genuine with what you see on camera. So um, I've had to do a lot of work of just committing to myself and to the board who oversees our work and to the community that i will always do my best to be as radically transparent as possible so we are so for example um our finances we post our profit and loss statement every quarter like everything on our website. You can go there right now and see what what our last quarter was. You can see my salary, how much the board has approved, what our overhead is, like it's all there. Um, And so I think that's kind of helped people not see me as like this, I hate to use the term, but it's the world we live in, this influencer, right? We're like, oh my God, this person has a big account on Instagram. Like, they're so cool. It's like, okay, you can't see it that way. Like, I wear a black, $6 black tee. I don't comb my hair when I'm on camera. My kids are always yelling because I'm a real fucking human, you know? Like, I don't give a shit about, about like this account thing. I care about trying to help people navigate these spaces that also selfishly helps me navigate my own trauma, frankly, right? So I just try and be as transparent with the community about these things as possible and let them know what I'm thinking and what the board's thinking and what we're thinking. And then I try and loop them in to some of those conversations as we kind of decide certain ways we want to go or certain things that we want to do so that's been my my approach so far it seems like it's worked out pretty well um sometimes i'll get someone in the dms because we we do respond to every instagram dm or at least we try to Sometimes someone goes, "Oh my god, I can't believe you responded." I'm like, "Why? Like I'm a human being. I poop just like you. Like please do not think of me any any different than just one of your buddies cuz that's literally all we're talking about here." So yeah. I just try and shut that shit down as often as possible because that's for my own mental health and well-being and also for the community's sake. And last thing I'll say, and I'll stop talking about this, the board does have a fail-safe in place where, um, A, I'm not a voting member of the board, so I really have no control over my salary or over big picture decisions, but also, I've told them and they agreed that if this ever becomes about the brand of Tim or the institution of Tim that they have the emergency kill switch and they should hit it and then just get me out and then just move on. So that's kind of built into the organizational work that we do. I have I have something but I want Megan if you have something.
0: Now go for it.
1: Mine is like kind of a hypothetical. So Sure. Tell tell me if hypothetically. I guess here's here's where I'm coming from. I was a church planner. I was involved in a church that was very cult-like, that was very, had tons of problematic behavior, really terrible leadership. And I was copable. I don't know what the right word. I I was complacent. I was uh, complicit. There's the right word Uh, in a lot of really harmful stuff. I was not the lead pastor, I did not make lots of decisions um, about things, but I came out of that with a ton of guilt and a ton of re- feeling a ton of responsibility for like, I just like defrauded a bunch of people, I harmed a bunch of people, I ruined a bunch of people's lives um, with my involvement in this. Hmm. If somebody that you're calling out, that you're talking to, somebody who's in these institutions, whether they're in a position of power that's you know lower or higher, has an uh, an aha moment. And they're like, shit, I just saw Tim. Uh, I saw this video on New Evangelicals. I'm, you know, challenged, convicted. I want to change my mind. I want to make things right. And they come to you and go like, how do I do that? How does somebody at that level, how does a, I'm trying to think of someone problematic, but not too problematic. (laughs) Like how, (laughs) how, how, how does your, you know, standard megachurch pastor that has been perpetuating some harmful theology undo that or you know make amends for that is there a way or is it like pretty much go sell insurance and shut the fuck up until you die
3: well i mean i like you said depends on the level of harm right like if someone is um Hey, I was doing my best. I was committed to Jesus. And now I'm realizing this is really problematic. I want to change. That's different than, yeah, I was abusing people behind the scenes, but can I stay in leadership? Like, no, no, you cannot. Um, but then I think about like, you know, the story of Zacchaeus who Jesus is like, yeah, okay. Um, you clearly defrauded people. So why don't you go ahead and repent and give everything back. And Zacchaeus is like, I'll do you one better. I'll give back like multiple times amounts of what I actually stole from people. Right? So it's like, okay, that's awesome. And then Jesus even says like salvation, the idea of of wrong being right has come to this house it's like a beautiful moment in in, in the biblical narrative so I think that and I don't want to sound like like the answer guy this is my speculation I don't really have an answer but if someone approached me and was like hey ma'am I've been running this mega church you know it's super successful and like by like evangelical standards we do 5,000 a week killer mega band but you know like Jesus commands us to feed the poor and clothe the naked and not have mega church every Sunday and like how do I change this because I want to do better it's so like, yeah, we should like really sit down and kind of go through what that might look like. And also, are you willing to count the costs? Like, let's let's start using that language that that we've heard our whole lives and start maybe taking it seriously. Like, yes, mega church pastor, what is the cost for you to lose a lot of your financial security, lose a lot of your, your feeling good on Sunday morning with 5,000 people amending your sermon uh, and really rethinking like, if we read, if we take the gospel seriously, and maybe even dare I say, literally, what does your church look like in that framework. <laughs> right? Like what if we took the Sermon on the Mount seriously or Matthew 25 seriously? I don't know. What do you think? I think it'd be that kind of conversation. You know what I mean of like I'm not going to give you new absolutes. I don't want to become a fundamentalist all over again, but if we're if you and I agree like Jesus is kind of what we're striving to be like and we we, we both agree that that these four gospels are kind of that blueprint what are you reading here? And how do you want to apply it to your cultural moment? You know? Um, So I think that's kind of the approach I would, I would want to take in theory anyway. Yeah. 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 It's definitely a hypothetical. So I didn't expect Like a very
1: prescriptive, succinct answer. Uh, I just think, I think about it a lot when I'm like, you know, calling people out and going like, fucking stop. Like, like if somebody was like, okay,
3: I'll stop. What, then what do I do? (laughs) it's such a fair point because listen let's just be honest right like twitter it can get really wild and it can it can get a lot and there's a lot of opinions flying around and you know it it could just be at times overwhelming right and so i get it where you're like well what if someone says okay i want to stop and you're like oh uh well now that now that i caught the car right like what do i do with this right exactly (laughs) and i think like honestly the the answer is to speak their language and to say, just take it, take it seriously. Like no lie. The only reason I started this account wasn't because I didn't believe in God anymore, but because I thought that that Christians in my circles were not living up to the calling of Jesus. I like to say I was more radical than they were like, uh, uh, you know, guys, I'm doing what you told me. I'm reading this Bible, how you taught me to read it. And I'm seeing major discrepancies between what you're telling me is in this book and how you're living your life. So I would just tell, You know, whoever it was like, just take your own words seriously and then actually count the cost to do that, whatever that might look like in your own cultural moment, because it will look different, you know, based on location and history and context and culture. But that that's the concept for me is like, just read the damn gospels and go do it. Yeah. I I love it.
0: Um, I want to go back to something that you said earlier about, um, online community and spaces online. And I, and the reason I want to go back is because of what what's happening on Twitter right now, where there's this like, Oh, what's going to happen. Are people, Twitter's my jam, right? <laughs> so it's like, are people going to um, stick around? Like Cortland and I are ho- host this deconstruction coffee hour on Tuesday mornings. Like we're kind of thinking like if, if something happens to Twitter, where do we go do that? You know? And so I do agree with you that there's limits to how, authentically people can present online. But I also think that for some folks in these communities, it's, it's a lifesaver. It's all they have. Um, there are people that don't have families that they shut off the internet and go home to. And there are people that have disabilities that prevent them from having that, um, in, in in-person, um, connection, And so this has been a lifeline for a lot of those people. And so I guess um, I I do want to kind of just ask for a little bit more like, what does it look like to have authentic community and online spaces, even within those limitations, knowing that how crucial and critical that is for, for some people that are navigating deconstruction and feeling like they're wandering through this wilderness and just... Finally feeling like, okay, I've been heard and seen for the first time in this Twitter thread, in this Instagram post, in this podcast that I'm listening to. Um, I don't know. I would I would love to hear your thoughts hmm. on that.
3: I mean, it's a it's a wonderful point and a great question. And I think we you know, listen, let's face it, we are what 15 years into the social media experiment as a human species. Um iPhones are 15 years old like this is new even as a species of how we handle communicating in this way right so I think we have to have that sense of humility of like we're kind of the first couple billion people on the planet to really have technology in this way and have connectedness in this way. Um, And you're right, I mean, we have people in our community who tell me this, like, hey, I lost everything. I have people who were on staff at churches. They said, hey, I posted on Facebook, Black Lives Matter. I got an email saying I have been fired. I've never been back, right? I have no one. My family has left me, my friends. I mean, these are real stories. This is not, these are not made up examples. And they say, uh, you know, your account or this space or this person's podcast is a lifeline. And like, what? first off, what a responsibility Right? Like that's something that, 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 that should, that should shake us to the core as people who produce this kind of content, that we have a serious responsibility to do our best to do right by those folks, because they're, they're trusting again, after they've been hurt in spiritual spaces, that's a big fucking deal. Um, and again, it's not about being perfect, right? It's about being accountable. Um, and like you said, people. They're looking. I mean, I think that's why this this social media world of of these these spaces have blown up because they 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 lost what was in person. I think I love what you guys do on Tuesday. I see it every time. I'm like, let me tune in. So I do. I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing. But I, you know, my kids yelling at me, so I have, to, I have to hang up. But I think consistency is a big deal. You know, like I I personally show up in our DMs Monday through pretty much Saturday um you know answering dms sharing dms uh, in the stories having those conversations soliciting feedback from the community and then our facebook group has an amazing admin and amazing mods who've done a great job at like just finding beautiful boundaries for folks to find that tension of of maybe discussing different opinions but also making sure that they're as safe as possible but still you know being pushed appropriately etc I, and that takes a lot of work, right? But I think those kinds of spaces are, are for some people, they are community, right? They are, um, the safe space that they've been looking for. They are a a place where they can say, I feel heard for the first time. I think it's interesting and I don't know about you guys, but on Instagram, I, 72% of our followers are women, Hmm. 72, seven out of 10. And I'm no, you know, sociologist. This is not, uh, you know, a hard data point. But I, I, I just think that because women historically have been so shunned uh, by the church and both their ability to lead and to speak and to shape cultures, I think so many women have found spaces like mine and like yours, and have been like, "Oh my God, people actually let me build this stuff." I'm in, right? And so because of that, I think we have an obligation to maintain those spaces. As best as we can. That's kind of my best answer right now. But I'm still working through that in my own mind, honestly, day to day. Yeah, I, lo- I I love that. I love that 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 it is
1: to some extent, and it's, it's an experiment. It's something that is going to change, and we're going to grow and learn together. <laughs> Sometimes that's messy, nice. uh, you know, uh, and that's the reality of it. I I know that we are creeping up towards the end here of our time we're gonna be respectful of your time I think you said you're gonna go you know drum I was gonna say earlier that you know people want to give you fan hair fair for the Instagram post wait till people see you drum then then <laughs> that's when they can be the fans right uh, so we, we can we can really go out you know? uh, <laughs> sure <laughs> uh anywho tell can you Like tell people where the different places they can connect with you. I know you've talked about them uh, throughout this in terms of the social media, your website, the opportunities to be able to find the work that you're doing. And I think there's places probably for people to actually get involved and co-create and like do stuff with you to some extent. Um, I know that people listening, you know, are looking for space for that, too.
3: Yeah. Um, anywhere that, that the term, the new evangelicals is we pretty much are, whether it's the website, Instagram, TikTok, etc., et cetera. Or, um, our, our website is great because folks can sign up for a free account. Everything we do is paywall free. We don't have Patreon. We don't Nothing we do is behind paywalls. People just donate. That's how we're able to make our work happen. So you can sign up for an account on our website and you can actually get access to a map. You can see who's in your area geographically and you can DM them from there. You can also sign up for any one of our free Zoom groups. We do a monthly Zoom group. That's my personal favorite called Theology 101 where we bring different theologians in talking about different parts of the Christian tradition. I've had Joe Lumen there. Uh, We're doing Steven Backhouse um, in November, um, et cetera. So we, we try and give people resources beyond just, um, you know, oh, I, I liked this video, but actual ways to maybe grow or just help them explore different parts of the Christian tradition, or hopefully meet some people in their area and actually make some in-person, non-proselytizing coffee friends. So <laughs> you can find us really anywhere that, that, that the New Evangelicals is.
0: Awesome. Well, um, we really appreciate you coming on and having this conversation and we always appreciate interacting with you in, um, online spaces. And especially now that we know that there's uh, two sides of you, the online version and the, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the messy haired version. Reveal, around.
3: Tim Whitaker's is not who he says he is. Um, But we do hope to hang
0: out in person someday. So maybe at one of our meetups, um, we can pull you in and we can collab on something because it would be awesome to to hang out in person. So thanks so much
3: for this. I am a firm believer that we are better together. And I think that with what's happening in our, even to the whole culture and Christian nationalism, like we just have to work together to get this shit at least resisted at a minimum. So I'm always down to work on anything. Awesome.
1: Awesome. Awesome. All right, well, Uh, until next time until we meet again uh thank you again for being here yeah all right that was great i loved him he's wonderful new evangelicals go check that out uh wherever you are on social media across the web
0: yeah that was a great conversation and i'm um Hoping to collab with him on some stuff in the future, too. So, um, yeah, it was great. And it was also great having Matt here for our intro. So um, people don't know this, but Matt's still sitting here with us while we do this part, too.
1: they're in, in studio audience what i love is is we actually have a link to be able to invite an audience to watch us record and maybe someday we'll do that because the Squadcast has that as a feature where oh, we that can would have be people, fun. Like, watching us so maybe for people who uh might want to to do that that might be something we open up to patrons first so okay but a, i would love uh, that opportunity go ahead
0: but i also would want to like have you know hear from them too does it let us like interact i think or they it, i just think it
1: does watch? i think we just have to try it so maybe maybe next episode uh when we're either recording with a guest or doing our intro or outro maybe we'll just post the link somewhere and, well you know uh, who i've heard is like works.
0: really good with this tech stuff if like we have questions or can't figure something out is elon musk and i feel like yeah he probably yeah. has a lot of time on his hands too so he could just yeah. probably Jump yeah. in, help us out, do all the tech stuff, write some code, and you know, exactly, get it exactly
1: all. Uh, 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 brings a great network of technical minds uh, along with him, too. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, episode, uh, whatever it is next, uh, might be brought to you by a defunct Elon Musk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, where can people find you, Cortland?
1: I am Cortland Coffee. Uh, everywhere you might try to find me, uh, that is my handle. Uh, I actually just recently went in and cleaned up my Tumblr, which was full of very churchy posts from like 2012. And I went and deleted all of those posts, and it is is a blank slate. So I'm now also on on Tumblr again. Uh, I still can't get into my old MySpace, uh, but Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Space Hey. Pinterest, TikTok, I joined Be Real this week. I I don't know what the hell that platform is. It pushes a notification. I take a blurry photo of my face every day, uh, but I'm on there. Be Real at Cortland Coffee. So, uh, Megan, where can people find you and the pod?
0: You can find me at the Pursuing Life on Facebook, even. Instagram and Twitter and you can find the podcast at thereafter podcast on Instagram and thereafter pod on Twitter and um, also shoot me a DM in any of those places. If you want to join the discord server for the deconstruction book club, we'd love to have you. Who knows? Maybe it'll get a bit more active. (laughs) So
1: yeah, all of us leaving Twitter, uh, you know, looking for something to do. Maybe uh, go join the, the discord server. Uh, yeah, thanks to, to everyone for being here. Uh, you can join the Patreon. There will be a link. There will be a link to all the new evangelical stuff in the show notes. And uh, I had something else. Oh, write us an a Apple podcast review. We haven't had one in a while. I know there are listeners. I know it's like takes feels like a big job to go over and write a review but you can write one sentence like this, these guys are great or these guys suck or it doesn't really matter like honestly what you say about us uh we would love to have a uh review written by you on uh, apple Podcasts. it just helps to get the word out about the show and uh get more people listening so
0: and feel free to join our Patreon, too. We, we have a couple things, a couple thoughts of um, some things we're going to do for our patrons. So jump in there and check it out.
1: Absolutely. All right. Until next week.
0: Until next time.